You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our final week discussing Eight Detectives by Alex Pavesi. Herds has been tackling this novel over the past few weeks, and we have finally, Herds, gotten to the end, seen through the guise. So it's all spoilers today as we uh, get to the get to the bottom Look. of everything that happened in the world of Grant. The world of, I love it. Look, tackling is the right world. I feel like I tackled this novel off of a cliff. Uh-huh. But the thing is, I went sailing off the cliff with it. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> looking back. You were like a little rug, just kind of. <laughs> yeah, just like flailing off the edge, mm-hmm. floating through in, on the breeze. Because I feel like there, there was a lot about this novel that I, I did get right, like the central Grant mm. twist. And reminder, we are in full spoilers. The, the fact that there were two Grants, I was like, now that figured out the big the big twist of the novel, but uh-huh. definitely some of the specifics of how that mechanism like worked uh, and the timeline of events, I could have probably done a bit better at. Mm. This this last part of the novel, this third section, we covered the um, seventh conversation and then the final conversation and the and the endings of the book because yeah. both Julia and Francis, who is impersonating Grant the whole time, mm-hmm. they both get their individual endings, which I quite enjoyed. I, I definitely feel like I enjoyed Julia's ending more, more than Francis's in some ways, though. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the whole, and then all of the mystery clues went up in flames was incredibly melodramatic, which I, I enjoy a bit of melodrama, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I definitely felt like, I was a little less satisfied with the sort of ending of this novel than I was expecting to be. I thought it was really interesting the way that we just pile ending onto ending onto ending onto ending. Yeah. Because what we find out in the lead up to Julia's ending is that Julia has actually been either by accident or intent rewriting all of the endings to the stories from the White Murders that we have read so far. Yeah, yeah. She says that at the end of the first story of the the two in the the Spanish inn, the Spaniards inn, whatever, mm. that she accidentally left out the final line, which is, of course, the twist ending where Megan, like, gives away that she knows that Henry is the killer. Yes. Right? And so when she discusses it, she, she forgets to say that that line or, or leaves it out, and Grant doesn't call her out on it. And so it begins, well- I would say it begins, but she's already lied previously. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. But the the sort of uh, device here is that much in the same way that uh, Megan says, you know, we've, once you start lying, you can't stop. You have this situation where uh, Julia has sort of accidentally lied. And so then she starts twisting the endings a little bit, a little more, completely rewriting the the final story in an effort to figure out if Grant is really who he says he is. And obviously by the time that she's completely rewritten one of the stories, she's pretty confident that this is not the same person who wrote them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting as well because we do find out, of course, as you were saying, that Julia has been fabricating things from long before the story begins. Yeah, she invented yeah. blood type publishing and got this entire meeting with Grant slash Francis as a ruse to find out what happened to her father, who was Grant. Yes. And yeah. it it's sort of fascinating the way that the novel has 
built Julia around this idea as though all of this kind of happened to her is the way that she frames it in her final discussion when she was sort of the initial agent of chaos. Yeah, I think that's the that's sort of the main thing that that feels a bit strange to me because I think that the I mean this is something that we talked about in the first week the idea that all the stories like lead you to understand each other and so obviously that link between Megan and her philosophy about lying and mm. uh Julia's philosophy about lying is resonant. But if Julia is the person who began lying in the first place, like the whole meeting between the two of them, it, it feels like a, a twist there for the sake of a for the sake of a twist, which I know is a terrible thing to say, but like interesting. I I don't necessarily agree. I think okay. I don't know if it's like a twist for the sake of a twist, but I definitely don't think that the blood type publishing line adds much to yeah. the story. I yeah, I think I agree with that. We're, we're we're sort of on the same page but definitely circling a a a different way of expressing the thought here. We're circling the the same edge of the cliff, which yes. is a deadly thing to do, mind you, if you try to circle the edge of a cliff, you typically only have a half circle to work with. Where I I feel that the blood type <laughs> publishing thing is an interesting detail to her character, but when you get to the end and it's delivered as a surprise, it's a bit of a yeah, and? Well, what is it? Yeah, like, what does it matter? Well, I'll tell you what. There, There is an interesting line that ties to that initial idea. And maybe we need to chat with Alex about this because I feel like there are, there are two concepts here. Uh-huh. And I think we can marry them if we say that Julia is lying about her first accident because she says, you know, I made up Blood Type Publishing. Yeah. And she, in her final ending, she says, ah, I have defeated the one who was deceiving me, which is a very, like, predatory thing to say. Oh, yeah. So if we take that she's lying to to, to Francis in the idea that it was a lie, that that was a lie, it's like another lie on top of a lie, then that is cohesive. It's fascinating as well when we start to talk about the meta text of the thing, because when we're dealing with this entire story being written and we see the two different endings for these characters that frame them in two de- very different lights and <laughs> yeah. still leaves a lot of stuff open-ended, you can begin to ask questions of yourself in terms of, okay, well, do I believe what this ending has just shown me? Mm-hmm. Did Francis have this fire happen to him or was it an act of arson? Mm. Did Julia walk away from the situation or did she murder Francis and write this story to cover her back, paralleling what her father did to Elizabeth White? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure there'd be something very clever there. Did she set the fire? Did she set the fire? We don't know. We don't know who the author is of the whole story, which is, I mean, that's that's worth mentioning, I guess. Like, obviously, we're, we're dealing with the question of who who is the author of these stories. And in the yeah. end, it is... Grant and uh, and Julia, which is the 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 father daughter bond that they share, that they're both like writers, mm. um, which is which is cool. And so to have her be the the ultimate writer of the story is is also possible. Uh, but it's the sort of thing that the book cannot answer, nor no. should it. No. I I like that the question is there, and I'd be curious to see someone go through and like put the pieces together to make an argument about it. Uh, I I definitely think that they're there, but I also don't think that that's the sort of thing we have the time and space on the show to quite debate in its entirety. Yeah. Maybe if we were to sit down with a book for a few hundred hours and 
go through every written word, we might have that sort of discussion, but that would be far-fetched. Coming up next week, uh, more of the AIDS detective, uh, <laughs> the next hundred no, parts. No, no, no. no, let's not do that. I, I think the thing that was interesting to me, though, is that we one of the things is as we're going through all of these original endings that were part of the white murders, mm. I felt as though it, it was a bit, much all at once. Well, it's interesting that we physically go through the writing of each story because Alex is trying to contain the secret twist ending to all of these stories yeah. into such a small space. Mm-hmm. I was actually having a, having a chat with you earlier, just before we came on air about, about this. The story, uh, A Detective and His Evidence... I, I thought that the twist was going to be that, oh, it's the like fiance that killed him. It's yeah. like another character. But the actual scene that we're presented, because it has to be a very short scene that like slots in, mm-hmm. is that between putting the guy away in the cell and him having committed or being forced to commit suicide, which is kind of what happened in the original text anyway, mm-hmm. he confesses that he's a detective and that actually he saw everyone do it. And it was a whole bunch. It, it was everybody. Everybody did it. Yeah. Which is fine as like a solution. But clearly Alex is working with the the conceit that he has to, he has to like fit that explanation of everyone did it into the space between locking him in the cell and his suicide. The actual ending of the story doesn't really change. The detective is a little less like predatory when it comes to the, the girl's body, but he still is a bad guy. Like, the actual theme of the story doesn't change that much. It's just the the, the maths of it, which is, like, fine. I, I think that there is definitely, like, the book leaning into its themes of permutation, right? Sure. That's the fun of it. Yes. Is that there is this question when you get to the end of a mystery novel and you ask, well, could I really argue that this was the correct answer? Mm. Like, you can put together a very competent theory about a lot of novels have the author tell you you're wrong, and go, well, wait, hang on a minute. No, I th- I still think this works for all of these reasons. And that's sort of the idea that we are exploring in that space. Mm. I mean, that's why we pose two theories every week, right? Like, that's the whole point. Yeah. And I do sort of like the opening the wound on that idea because mm. it is a bit of a weird, painful thing about the murder mystery puzzle side of things because you're kind of whether or not you like it, psychoanalyzing the author by seeing how closely your brain ticks to them on how these clues all line up. And sure, there might be things that you don't notice that all add up and the author can go through and explain it and add their twist. But as we sort of see with that detective at the end and with the Inferno in Theaterland story, like there are just holistic entire other explanations that can be dumped on you at the end and still sort of line up with what's being given. Yeah. I I do feel like the question to me is still about satisfaction with, with the endings, because I think I need to go and maybe flick through the last couple of of conversations and, and have a think about it. Cause I definitely wasn't like 100% satisfied with all of those you know, those holistic changes of, of the mechanics of the ending. But at the same time, like that's 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 part of the story that um what we're supposed to be looking at and what and what what I can appreciate is that Julia is the one who has, you know, decided to change the endings. Part of the story canonically is that she's she's kind of doing it on the fly. She's pointing at things that she notices as she goes along as well. Yeah. And this novel is an expression of that freedom of thought mm-hmm. and that idea that if you change just a few lines, you can completely distort 
the original intention of the text. Yeah. Um, while still, as because Grant or, or Francis is still able to talk to the mathematics of the of you know of what he knows, even with the changes, because the themes and and what the story is a about holistically is still kept intact. I think I think also like questioning the satisfaction is interesting because the first time I read through the story, I definitely had a sense that I was sort of like tuning out to the alternate explanations mm. the first time I read them. Sure. Because the feeling that I got is that now that we're a- approaching the big twists, we sort of know the shape of the meta narrative yeah. going over the fine details of the smaller stories doesn't feel as weighty. Like there's a, there's a curiosity to it. Right. But- I see what you're saying, but because we we're already up to the, you're not who you say you are, right? Yes. Like we, we're already opening the biggest present under the tree mm. and, <laughs> and you're trying to make me go to like the sock present. You're like, oh, yes. you, there's a fire truck. You can see the shape of the present. You know it's the fire truck, but wouldn't you also like these socks and these underpants? Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> that's terrible, but pretty apt. And don't, don't get me wrong. That was one of the reasons I enjoyed the reread of this book the most yeah. is because once all of the surprises are out of the way i then can get into the direct reading of the text but the first time through which was back when this book first came out i was definitely a bit like uh, this is overstayed it's welcome for me you know what I, so, you know what i will say though because i i want to attract part of of this conversation because I really enjoyed the last story because it was completely different to what we were given the first time. And I thought that Uh it's musings on death and how two people can do something that they think is kind of fun and, and kill themselves in the process Mm -hmm. was a really entertaining and horrific idea. Like the moment where, cause it's, it's these two detectives and they're like, we're going to go find ghosts in the old warehouse. Yeah. And one of them starts a fire and the other one blocks the door and they're both doing it with the intent of like keeping them both inside or kicking them out or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're trying to, you know, push things along, but it results in them both burning in the warehouse and as they come to the realization that they've both killed each other, no one is explicitly to blame. They are, they share the blame. Um, they're just eating this like moldy old chocolate and staring out the tiny window that they can't fit through. And they just accept death in a way. Um, I know I know that they like beat on the door. It's like how their body is found. They they beat on the door in desperation. But like the conversation that they have is about accepting their own demise and in a way how stupid they were. Yeah. Which is really neat. I, I, I definitely agree. I want to talk more in the mystery section, not specifically about the mystery, but a bit more about the like characterization yeah. of Grant as the like absent character in the story. Let's let's get into that death scene as well, mm. because that was an absolute highlight for me. But we're gonna wrap this part of the discussion here and be back very shortly with more on your murder mystery world tour. Stick around. This is Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Eight Detectives by Alex Pavesi all the way to the end. Spoilers are in tow. And Herds, before we get into the discussion that Uh-oh. I foreshadowed for this section, I suppose we should cover your points. Yep. I'm, look, I'm optimistic. I don't think I'm getting a three. Mm. Uh, I guess we'll see between a one and a two because I definitely 
got the broad strokes, but the yeah. specifics of the mystery, I don't know. I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You definitely predicted where the twists were and what they were going to be, but not the direction that they were going to twist. Yeah. And I guess I I have been tossing this up quite a bit because don't do me dirty look you told me last week you were like wow that was so impressive how far you managed to get through this novel if you give me one point i will fight you well it it, it was it was very impressive and i think quite frankly i think quite frankly that the book is a little a little unfair <gasps> i'm gonna say it you know what i'm i'm gonna agree with you i'm gonna agree because i think that uh frankly look there may be all these different permutations, but the book does not lay them down as law. It does look the, the case. The case that I'm going to make here, Herds, yeah, is that the book is most authentic to itself by being compellingly unfair because the premise is about permutation. What does that mean? What does that mean in terms of my points flex? What are you doing? What are you doing to me? I would love to know. Do would you feel a sense of shame at at T- stealing an extra point out from Alex Pavesi for being no. for being unfair when it served his story. I would not feel any shame at all. I would love to take two points. Well, I, then look, you can take your two points because I think that you know. But if I get, you get coal in your <laughs> stocking at Christmas, it'll be from do Alex. Not come crying to me. I would never look. I propose two theories, and I think that you know the main aspects of the story. It's you know it's the the who. The how and the why, and I, I figured out the who of of the story. Uh, you might say not of the actual murder, but look, let's be clear. That the white look, Elizabeth's white murder, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Throw it out the window. <laughs> Does that matter to the story? Not really. And I I got uh most of the why. I think I think I got about half of what yeah. was going on. Look. I, I went back through this book so many times oh, looking no. at the clues, and there wasn't a particular moment where I thought to myself, this is the thing that should have prodded Ben to like take this twist the right way. Mm-hmm. I think that the book very clearly telegraphed, as I said, what the twist was going to be and where it was going to be, but it was a real game of weighing scales is to which direction. Yeah. I mean, obviously it, it gives you the clues around Francis and, and his existence mm. and, and Julia's connection is kind of implied though. Even that I, I don't know is, is like fully properly foreshadowed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess the main thing that I, I struggled with last week, I remember was when you were asking me like about the timeline um, of like, mm-hmm. You know, if if the if the book has been edited, then it it must have been done by someone. And I said it was Grant. I said that Grant had done it. Oh, sorry, Francis had done it, so he could like cover up mm-hmm. Grant's sins or their relationship. But in fact, it was it was Julia, right? Who was yes. editing on the fly. Which I I definitely had that thought. This is the thing. I, I totally agree with you. I definitely had the thought at one point. I messaged you, yeah. being like, "Is she trying?" To like bait him with false endings. Is she mm-hmm. doing that? Because we had established that he was like blind and kind of old and and wouldn't know who she was or what she was writing, what she was reading. But in the end, I thought it was a neater conclusion to have all of the sort of agency placed on Grant and Francis. Yes, uh, I thought that having the two of them be the 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 dyad, as it were in this story made the most sense to me to have the focal point beyond the two of them and their relationship. But clearly 
the twist is around Julia and her involvement. Yeah, like why which, she's there. Yeah, which I didn't r- properly consider uh, before laying out my theory, I suppose. Yeah, I think the interesting thing talking about that diet is that we see so much of Francis and the after image of Grant, but yes. we never really get to see the direct character of Grant because the story we're reading, he didn't even write. Yep. <laughs> I guess that's the thing, right? I was expecting it to be about these two gay dudes writing books together. Um, but yeah, Grant falls off a cliff in a flashback. Mm-hmm. He does very little. He, I mean, he, he kills Elizabeth White and steals her books. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they're having a cute picnic together and he randomly falls off a cliff for hardly any reason. Yeah, ev- everything <laughs> that Grant does in this story is, incidental. is off screen. Yeah, and off screen. Except dying. Which is a great death scene, by the way. I did want to compliment oh, that yeah. moment because you know that he, like, he can't survive that scene. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's described is them just, like, enjoying it. And you can tell that they have a, a sort of poetic soul that they share with each other where yes. one of them, uh, I, think, I think it's Francis. Yeah, well, it must be. Francis is looking out to the sea because he likes looking at things that he cannot have. Mm-hmm. And of course, Grant's sitting in front of him and Grant is looking at things that he he wants to hold on to. And so, of course, um, both Francis and the ledge that he falls off <laughs> in front of him. Because um, he, yeah, he, he would love to grasp that ledge and hold on to it. And yeah, that that moment when the ledge breaks and he falls into the ocean is great. I love that moment. Um, I would have loved to see more of Grant. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was asking you last week was there was something that I said was a sort of hole in your theory and that you had suggested that Grant's death would be foreshadowed in the text. And I asked, how would that be possible if he wrote it? And yeah. I didn't really have a particular question in terms of what I expected you to be able to pick, but I was hoping that if there was foreshadowing, you might catch on to where Alex Pavesi had foreshadowed this death scene. And it most explicitly happens in Death at the Seaside. I was going to say, in my initial theory in week one, when I said that the wife had died, I'm pretty sure I said, ah, his wife fell off a cliff. I'm pretty sure I said that, which... Obviously, I'm not going to, like, leverage any any points off of that. But, like, I'm pretty sure I said that. The thought did cross my mind. But, it, again, it didn't make it into my final theory. I thought, well, if there's no wife to be murdered, then, you know, we can throw out this whole fall off a cliff business. Yes. But, yeah, I, I do agree. Like, in, in terms of Alex's writing, right, like, setting up. Um, the idea that someone could just fall off a cliff, mm-hmm. but they probably did it. You know, it was probably someone, you know, pushing them, but it could happen. Yeah. Right. That ties in with the whole idea that all the stories are referencing each other and giving you clues and, and ideas with which to solve each other. Yeah. Which is really cool. And, and I mean, in terms of the way that parallels lay themselves out through this story, that is very compellingly done in that, in the same way we were talking about earlier, there is ambiguity in who actually mm. wrote the text that we're reading. And if it is Julia and she did commit a crime off screen <laughs> underneath the page in the dying moments of the story, then it sort of parallels what her father Grant did in stealing the white murders from the woman he murdered. Mm. There definitely are all of these little connections that you could point to and sculpt metatextual theories out of. But in the same way that Death at the Seaside cannot be about Grant's death because he was not alive to write it, yeah, it, it kind of more comes down to 
Alex Pavese's dr- sense of dramatic irony. You're correct. You're correct. Because I, I mean, yeah, the, you've elucidated my point better than I could. Because like, obviously, I throw out the wife falls off cliff theory because if he's written the book and there was no dead wife, then why would it foreshadow that? Yes, it doesn't make any sense. Which is, yeah, Alex has has crafted a a wonderful story that loops around on itself. Mm. I only wish that I could have swung in the correct direction yeah. uh, when it comes to Julia and, well, and Elizabeth. Yeah, and I, I, I think that this book definitely is one that is better on a reread. And I'll have to give it another look through. You know, I think that that's true for a lot of mysteries, but I can definitely, I, I was slightly frustrated on the first read of this book, which is why I, uh, I didn't initially kind of seek it out to cover on the show when it first came out combined with other logistical things that may have been happening on a global scale at the time. (laughs) Which we will not speak of. Look, it's it's always nice to have a book on the on the show that we don't like universally praise. Yes. I because I I really I did really enjoy this book. Like I loved getting to go through and pick apart the details and think about Mm. what if, you know, what could all of these things mean? It was a really fantastic experience. But also to kind of go over you know, why, why do we love the books that we love? And yeah. Uh, what do we want to see in Alex's next book? I, I, th- I think so. And it's also fun to me because I can heartily recommend this book. Oh yeah. But my question is to whom? Mm. Because I don't think this book is going to be for every reader of books. It might be for every reader of mystery books. Uh, but, but how do I decipher that? How do I pitch a story like this where I do have these issues with it, but I think, that the book is well worth it. That's always a really fun, challenging to me. And so many of my favorite stories fall into that camp. I mean, this is this is obviously something we'll discuss when we come to the the ranking at the end of the year. We're already thinking about it, but I feel like tackling it as, you know, it's a book about these short detective stories that you can just kind of consume one at a time. Yeah. Um, and then watch as the person who's reading it slowly realizes, wait a second, there's a bigger story here. There's, there's some things going on. I feel like that would be the best kind of foot to put forward. But mm. I mean, it's a, it's also a better text. <laughs> like there's a crowd for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and also it's a book by a mathematician about yep. mathematically presenting murder mystery. Mm-hmm. How <laughs> realistic the mathematic paper at the core of this book is, I mean, I assume it is because it doesn't seem to be the most outlandish mathematic theory. It, it seems to be sort of a mathematical philosophy. The thing is that it's, it's really just about how to make the simplest forms of murder mystery. That's yes. really all that it is. Definitely. I, I, the, the case I was going to make here is that it sticks to its guns on that premise. And I, really admire the way that it works with them. Yeah. You know, it's a very, it, it very much feels like restrictions breed creativity. Yes. And I mean, we, we've talked about this with our, I mean, both of the the previous novels that we've covered. Yes. We covered it for uh, Benjamin Stevenson's Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone um, and Janice Hallett's uh, Al- the, the Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels, mm. um, where both of those novels have had extremely creative approaches to murder mystery. And uh, they, 
I mean, as I've said before, I'd rather see innovation in the space yeah, than stagnation. Absolutely. For the love of goodness gracious Christie, let's <laughs> get some get some weird stuff in here. Let's go. Bring on the weird. Yeah. Uh, every time publishers say this is something, something Christie, <laughs> I grow less yeah. interested. I grow a gray hair every time I hear that. I like Agatha Christie. I quite like Agatha Christie. But innovation in the space, yes, please. I, I also think that there's a curious thought to me that we'll have to maybe explore with your next book herds Uh here on the show yes uh, i know (laughs) we seem to enjoy books that stick to a very challenging premise Mm -hmm. and but don't take it too seriously the most because we've kind of progressively got more serious over the past three books uh and i wonder how that'll play out yeah look we need we need a reset we need a reset point at least not to be i i've i've already let slip to flex what we're going to be doing next uh we're, we're going to be covering Death Comes to Marlow by Robert Thorogood. It's a story. It's the second in the in a series of uh, uh, around an elderly detective mm-hmm. who loves crossword puzzles. And I have it on good authority that crossword puzzles will be involved in the solution of the novel. Oh, there may be yeah. points put on you physically solving crossword <laughs> puzzles. So get ready for that. I will check your working. Yeah, I am frightened, to say the least. Good. Uh, especially because I feel like crossword puzzles really highlight where I am worst <laughs> at solving murder mysteries. Yes. Well, what I'm excited for, because I'm I'm planning on reading the, the I haven't read the first book in the series, but I'm very curious to see how we're going to keep the idea of a crossword puzzle at the center of the mystery, like, interesting and fresh. Because uh, you, you can only explain how to how to do a crossword puzzle, I think, so many times. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm excited for. Um, and we'll, we'll be covering we'll be covering uh, in Death Comes to Marley by Robert Thorogood up to chapter 14. Well, thank you for joining us here for Alex Pavesi's Eight Detectives all the way to the end. Full spoilers. It's been a blast. It hurts. Well done. Let's go. We'll be back with Robert Thurgood's Death Comes to Marlow, chapters 1 to 14 next week on the show. We're excited to have you here for that as we continue on your murder mystery world tour. This is Death of the Reader. You're on 2SCR 107.3, and we are out of here.